The American dream inspires many, but it's not without its flaws. The reality is people experience workforce discrimination in many forms. It's time to open our eyes and have challenging yet enlightening conversations. It's not always easy, but we need to start in order to make a difference. That conversation begins here. Welcome to the Untapped Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Untapped Podcast. I'm your co-host, Emmett, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy. This evening, we are thrilled to be joined by Vontrice, who is the owner of a wealth management business. She has a background in marketing and finance, who also spent years in multiple Fortune 100 companies. Vontrice, thank you so much for joining, and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Emmett and Jeremy. Um, yes, I do. I have a BSBA in finance and marketing and an MBA with an emphasis in investment management and entrepreneurship. Um, professionally, I have over 23 years of experience, including 16 years in corporate roles that you mentioned, Emmett. And while in grad school, it was always my intention to leverage that corporate experience, both the good and the bad, to start my wealth management firm, which I started about seven years ago. Um, my target market within my business is that community that Wall Street left behind. So when you think about the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgans of the world, they would only manage assets for ultra high net worth individuals and organizations. I provide a service for middle income earners that may not have that seven plus figure net worth at the moment, but have enough disposable income to put their money to work for them and to build a portfolio of assets um, with the objective of closing that wealth gap. Because the wealth gap is not simply about what you earn, it's about what you own. It's your equity. It's whether that's in real estate or financial assets. So I partner with my clients so that they understand that it's not just about income inequality. And trust me, that's important and it needs to be addressed. But general generational wealth is established through ownership and securing a portfolio of financial assets. Awesome. So what inspired you? To start my business? Yes. So I've been investing since I was 19 years old. So I was investing for myself, but I noticed that as I'm investing, as I'm build, building my portfolio of wealth, my coworkers who are extremely talented, they're extremely smart. Um, my friends who have graduate degrees, some PhDs, they had no idea or concept of the stock market um, or investing. And so as they saw me building my portfolio, Every once in a while, they would tap me on the shoulder and say, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And then you fast forward to 2010, 2015, and technology actually introduced um, investing to the populace, right? So I would say even five years ago, maybe even seven years ago, right as I was starting my business, people understood there was a market out there but they didn't have access to it. They thought it was for the others, the people who are already wealthy and that they didn't have an opportunity to invest themselves. And so knowing that I've been doing this since I was 19 years old, before I even earned my first dollar on my own, I was investing. So I really thought this was surely an opportunity for me to bring investing to the populace because what they thought wasn't available to them was surely available to them. And technology made it that much easier. 
which was an opportunity for me to start my company. All right, good stuff. I, I love to hear progression in, in someone's life, and you're also helping others um, in the same time. So we're going to get straight into our questions. So what kinds of discrimination have you experienced within the workforce? Um, so corporate America wants us to believe that advancement is based on merit and that everyone has the same opportunity to succeed. Um, however, these so-called meritocracy have moving goalposts, right? Only a select few actually knows what it takes to succeed. And I'll tell you, as an African-American woman at the beginning of my career, I found that there was this duality in my life in that I had a professional demeanor that was different from my personal. Um, and to be honest with you, I was very conscious of this notion, this trope of being viewed as the angry black woman. So yes, there was this, what people call code switching. I would modify my speech, my behavior, my appearance so that I would fit in. I never compromised my character or my values to be accepted, but I would adjust my tone, right? I wanted to make you feel comfortable with me in your presence. You know, we've all heard the saying, you pick and choose your battles. Well, I noticed that myself and my peers, other people of color, we pick far fewer battles than our white colleagues because when they challenged the status quo, they were viewed as game changers. While under the same scenario, I was viewed as not being a team player, right? So there's two different playbooks at play, right? We all wanna say we're on the same team, but we really are not approached in the same way. I'll give you another example. I work hard. I, I add significant value to my projects, to overall corporate initiatives. You know, I'm even exceeding in many ways. More often than not, it was met with the lukewarm reception was, well, that's good, but that was just what you were supposed to do, right? However, my white peers could simply restate my idea. They could be as bold as presenting my body of work and all of a sudden it's brilliant. So in many ways, it's not the idea itself that gets the credit, it's the face behind the idea that does. Therefore, in the mind of corporate America, their meritocracy is intact because they choose who to reward with the achievement, regardless of who actually owned the thought and or idea. And I can tell you these microaggressions is what lead corporate leaders to believe and make statements like, I don't know if you guys heard, but Brian Moynihan is the CEO of Bank of America. And a few months ago, he said in a public forum, and he said it with confidence, he said, we have a hard time finding qualified Black candidates. And <laughs> I remember thinking, hearing this and thinking, well, that's a reflection of your internal efforts, not the availability of qualified talent. And it also signaled to me that the underrepresented groups in currently employed by Bank of America is likely not being acknowledged appropriately. So when you talk about discrimination, discrimination is the need for me as a person of color to change so you feel comfortable. Discrimination is not acknowledging my hard work, but easily giving credit for my work to someone else. So it's been that way for two decades, and unfortunately, it's currently prevalent in today's corporate America. So with that, you talked about the Bank of America, and we know all about what the Wells Fargo CEO stated. Do you feel that there is a such thing as status 
discrimination, meaning that I need to be on some type of platform or I need to be high and mighty in order to be able to, uh, to get to some of these uh, roundtable discussions or have a seat at the table. Because I feel that there is a problem there that's not being addressed. Oh, certainly, certainly. So you, you mentioned status. Socioeconomics is included in that. You are only invited or deemed worthy to have a conversation with once you've made it. But it's extremely hard to make it. Um, so you talk about discrimination. Discrimination comes in the form of, I don't believe you are capable of sitting at my table until you prove you're capable, right? So as a person of color, I automatically dismiss your abilities, your capabilities, until you've proven it somewhere else. And then all of a sudden it's, you're the one and you're worthy to sit at my table. So to answer your question, the answer is yes, yes. You know, obviously you are a very high educated woman. Jeremy has several degrees himself. How important are those degrees, do you feel, into be having a seat at that table? Do you feel that those degrees are less valuable as a woman of color? Or in comparison, have you noticed that certain people can actually rise through the higher ranks with less education if they're white or of a different background? Absolutely. As a person of color, the minimum is my educational credentials, right? I'm not even considered until you know my full resume. And that resume absolutely needs to have the right academic credentials behind it. So how high did you go? What is your degree level? Do you have an undergrad plus a grad degree? And then let's look at the institution who would have awarded it to you, right? And so, um, yes, your degree level helps at least give you a chance to have a conversation, but it's an absolute must. You know, I, 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 I have an appreciation for education, so I don't want to take that away. But I also think there are extremely intelligent entrepreneurs out there today that are making an impact on our society that have not stepped on one college campus, right? And so it's not an indication or a signal. I think that's an old archaic structure to indicate capability, but it is what's used to um, put roadblocks up. Um, if you don't demonstrate on paper that you're worth talking to, um, then I, I don't have an opportunity for you. Yeah, absolutely agree. And one of the things that you know we're also talking about too and been discussing, one of the things that we're passionate about is actually getting out into HBCUs. You know, Jeremy and I and Untapped were talking about the lack of companies that even visit a campus, an HBCU campus, to find that talent. And, you know, where the education is almost seen as subpar compared to going to a standard primarily white institution. What's kind of been your experience? I completely agree. I want to share an experience I had with you. I was on a recruiting team at uh, one of the corporations I work with. And one of their, tar their two target schools um, were Chapel Hill and Duke. And as part of this process, I highlighted to them the road to Chapel Hill includes Howard, 
It includes Hampton. And in fact, North Carolina A&T and Winston-Salem State are a few hours up the road from Chapel Hill. So when you say to me that you don't have access to qualified talent, I say to you, you've limited your access pool. You are going to predominantly white universities and colleges where there's 0.5% of the total population is reflected in people of color and especially African-Americans. So again, this is more of a reflection of your access or your internal efforts. You tell me that you can't find them, I will take you to them and show you an abundance of talent. Um, so I would agree with that statement. It is the limitation and limited thinking by these corporations on where the talent resides. I love what was stated there because I am a recent graduate of A&T. Are Pride. you an A&T grad? Aggie Pride. <laughs> Aggie Pride all day, all day, every day. So I love that statement. So that, that gets into the next question, and it, it is a perfect transition. So what is lacking currently in corporate America for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives? The biggest, I would say the biggest miss right now is the inclusion part, right? So corporations, they, they like to use diversity as a catch-all, right? They think diversity and inclusion and equity it's one big bucket, but it's not. You know, diversity is about quantifying who is in your organization. How many people, how many people of color are in your leadership team? How many people are on your board of directors, right? So that's the diversity part. Inclusion talks about the quality of experience. I talked a little bit about earlier on in my career, I had to adjust to fit in. Well, inclusion says, I encourage you to show up in my corporation just as you are. You can speak, you can emote, you can dress, you can wear your hair as you want to and still have equal access to opportunities. It's encouraged. So when I, when I hear corporations talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, all I hear is diversity. There's a role for diversity but what they're missing is the inclusion part. They're also missing that third piece, which is equity. Equity is acknowledging that not everyone has the same opportunities and not everyone starts at the same place. And so for organizations to succeed in their DNI initiative, they have to acknowledge the system of inequality first and they have to do it without excuse. So that's the biggest piece missing overall. Yeah, and it plays, I think, a lot into, as you said earlier, the meritocracy and that no one, not everyone starts with those same opportunities. So how does corporate America eliminate a lot of those issues or the meritocracy? How do they get rid of some of these really quantitative metrics that aren't actually broadening the culture of thought? It's really just about hitting your numbers and yeah, that's really it. Um, yeah, the quantitative metrics do serve a role. So eliminating them altogether, it's not the right path. They play a role. What you need to do and appreciate is the distinction between the quantitative metrics and the qualitative experiences, which is the inclusion part. So what they have to do a better job at doing is bringing the two together. And the way you do that is 
Yes. Okay. I understand that there's divisions out there. Divisions occur from not having shared experiences. Um, and so therefore, automatically, my white colleagues may not understand and they may not want to understand the benefit of a DEI initiative, right? What they understand is overall company success. They're proud to say, I work for Tesla, for example, or any company that has this prominent household name. They're proud to say that I contributed to my company's growth and profits. You know, this is the shared experience and common ground in which you base the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because when a company promotes, when they encourage and empower diversity of thought, when they implement innovative ideas and create a working environment that reflects the communities that buy their products and services, they are far more prepared to establish brand loyalty with these consumer bases. You know, companies that align their DEI, I firmly believe, have better performances. So not only is this is the right thing to do, it can also be quite profitable. I recently read a stat that said companies with diverse management tend to do 35% better financially. This same study also said that companies that have at least three three female directors on their board have a 66% higher return on invested capital, it's 42% higher return on sales, and 53% um, higher return on equity. And so I am not naive to think that my white colleagues would understand my journey. They've never walked in my shoes, but we do have a common ground, right? And that is the success of our organization. And the success of my organization is my ability to contribute in my most authentic self. My attempt to get you your bonus, my bonus and your bonus at the end of the day, because profits were so well, is me being able to show up in the decision-making rooms, addressing our consumer bases and our target markets in a way that I understand their experiences. And then therefore they're more willing to consume our products and services. So it really is about the bottom line in order to bridge that gap for my white colleagues and non-people of color. Authenticity is key. And I think that's something that's always overlooked. So I can tell by how you're speaking, you're out, outside the box thinker. And that's how I am. So do you believe that corporate America tends to favor women and people of color that think and act within the status and in the current status quo? And if so, does this penalize other women and people of color who think outside the box or offer a different perspective? The short answer to both of those questions is yes. If I go back to um, my initial experience early on with corporate America and the need to cold switch, that's where corporate America is comfortable. They naturally gravitate towards that norm. And if they can meet diversity goals without needing to evolve or change or truly create a culture of inclusion, then that's the path of least resistance and they will sign up for it without hesitation. They get to check their box and present externally their good deeds, regardless of the true reflection inside the organization. Then they'll count it as a win and go on with business as usual, which means the answer to your second question is yes as well, right? In many cases, these DEI initiatives are not about bringing in qualified talent with broad experiences. 
It's about bringing in individuals that they can shape and mold into their established image. And if not, the, the employee is truly penalized. They do it one of two ways. They either remove access to opportunities, so there's no growth, or they remove them for their, their, their organization overall. So I'll say this, if you show me an organization that create an environment where different perspectives are welcome, I will show you an organization that has high retention and low turnover among people of color. The opposite is also true for companies that limit diversity of thought. In this case, you will likely experience high turnover among people of color compared to other groups because either the organization once again penalized them for not completely conforming or they voluntarily exit the organization because they just desire to be in an organization and in a company that appreciates their talent, right? And so if, I, if I, where I'm currently at only rewards groupthink, if it only accepts same, that same way of thinking, that sameness, then this is not the place for me. So the answer to your question is yes, either I conform or I might as well leave. Is, pretty much the message. One of the things I'm thinking to myself is, you know, what are some of these examples? Because we say, you know, things that are, you know, thinking outside the box and people that fit with the status quo. I mean, what, if you can kind of enlighten me a little bit, can you elaborate on a particular maybe example that's typically common? Is there just a, something that's typically said, maybe it was from your own personal experience? Because um, I know that you mentioned earlier that people's idea or your idea gets shut down and then it's come from another person and it's, accepted is that typically what you're talking about or is there a, is there other types of ideas that are shunned and say like no i don't want to go with your progressive whatever it may be i i would say it's not as overt it's not yeah. an overt behavior it's very subtle and in many ways i'm not even sure that there's an awareness that it's taken place it's this unconscious bias gotcha. that um, and, and, and let me go back to why it's important for me to, you know, I have to preface my idea or recommendation. So whatever I'm about to share, you know that I'm with you. I just want to explain something else, right? So for example, my white colleagues can just say what's on their mind. I have to do a whole setup. It's the company's doing well. I'm on board with your, your strategy, but have you considered, right? I have to make them feel comfortable with what I'm gonna say that may challenge their idea or challenge their strategy or challenge their approach. I just can't come out and say, I don't think that strategy, that strategy or that tactic fits the overall approach, right? This is a generalization. Right, absolutely. I have to come to the table with, I love the fact that you guys are doing X, Y, and Z. I have to make them feel comfortable with my different approach or encouraging an alternate perspective. My white colleagues do not have to do that. My white colleagues can simply say, I don't agree with that. <laughs> like, like just to be straightforward. Well, I don't agree with the, the point you just made. I don't have that luxury. I don't have the luxury to be honest with my perspective. Now, Emmett, they asked me for my perspective. They asked me for my opinion and they'll feel comfortable with me simply signing off. Oh, no, 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 no. You guys 
have it all together. And then it's sort of like, well, I, I involved you. I encouraged you to speak up. They did that, right? That's, right? That was appropriate. And so they won't come out and say, I'm gonna ask you your opinion, but don't give it to me. That is not what they're gonna say. What's gonna happen is we're gonna leave the meeting and I'm gonna feel it, right? Either you're not going to invite me back or you're not going to give me the next opportunity to be at the, to sit at the table. And so it's very subtle. And I, I do wanna go back to the point I made earlier, which is my white colleagues, when they step up and stand up, they're viewed as, oh, you're strengthening our idea. You're making this better. I don't, I have not always had that opportunity. I've had it in some cases, and I can tell you I've had it in some cases because I had good champions in the organization. I had good mentors in the organization, um, and they created a path for me to really start to be who I am and contribute the, for the reason you hired me. You hired me for a skill set. You hired me for a talent. You hired me for what could have been my intellectual capabilities. And I need you to be comfortable with what you hired me for. Ooh, ooh you said a whole lot there because uh, one, passive aggressiveness. That's one. Two, what they may say to you in that what, when you're sitting at the table, they're not going to say it when they have another little closed door, um, as I would say, group therapy session, as I call them, with their other colleagues and say, yeah, we don't want her back. You, you hit on those points 100 because that is literally what happens. We cannot be outside at the box thinkers. We just got to just stay in our little zone and just work with what they're giving us. And then, you know, that, that brings up another point. So, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the lead on this one because it's something that bothers me. As an African-American, and as you see other African-American colleagues and how they react to certain things, and they go along with the status quo and you see them move up. Do you notice that they change? They change their, their, their stripes as far as who they are and, and what they are as an individual because they want to make sure that they are impressing someone instead of actually, okay, I'm, I'm going to be my own person because that, I see that a lot. And, and it goes back to what you talked about with Robert Johnson, that status. Status discrimination is what I, I'm, I'm really just really thinking about right now, because you can have millions and millions of dollars and I made it. But are you going to help someone that looks like you as well? Because I, I see that a lot as well, is that you didn't made it to this VP role. You didn't made it to this senior VP role. You've made it to be a general, general manager, but you forgot that there are other people that look like you. They're still sitting outside the lines. So I just want to know your thoughts on that because that's something near and dear to me. My lived reality is absolutely. I have had more champions in the organization that do not look like me. I've had mentors in the organization that um, do look like me, but when it's time to champion and advocate for me, more often than not, they don't look like me. Why? because they do not want to put themselves in the line of fire. I still have some things I want to achieve. And if I'm to speak up and push back, I might be hurting myself. Or I've made it this far, 
by going along, by going, getting, going along to get along. So I'm not going to disrupt the flow. And so I've experienced that time and time again. Now I've had some people of color that's been great champions, but they do it cautiously. They're not willing to step up and put themselves out there because they know how hard it has been to get where they are. Um, and I think in, in, in that way, they actually lose a little bit of themselves. They lose a little bit of the fact that they are where they are for the purpose of paving a path, having an impact on the organization. You know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion initiatives, a lot of organizations think that's a bottom up approach. That's why it fails. It has to be a top-down approach where you begin to cement and establish and model the behavior. So if the CEO have five to seven direct reports, I need him to model what he says his stated objectives are. And he needs to have quantifiable representation and those representations need to be, um, need to be empowered to make change. And then from the top, down is that cascading effect. But if in order for me to go from entry level to middle management, I have to play this game. I'm not comfortable going from middle management to senior management and then all of a sudden having a voice. That's not my experience and that's not what got me my success. And so the, the bottoms up approach is very limiting. But if the CEO says, I give you permission to be who you are. And then their direct reports is getting that same message. Then the model behavior is seen across the organization. And then I do have the luxury and the freedom. I am empowered to pull those more junior associates up because I'm having a positive impact and it's being acknowledged across the organization. And so, Jeremy, I would say the reason why so many people get lost in the shuffle is because their path to success meant they couldn't have a voice. And so they're not empowered to reach back down. But if the organization says, my expectation is for you to be who you are, now they're empowered to do so. Amen. So I kind of want to get into some of the solutions. Um, so how would you advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion with colleagues who do not understand its importance? Oh, it, it goes back to what are we both most interested in achieving, right? So what is that shared common experience across the company? And that is when my company succeeds, I succeed, right? When I am empowered to contribute through my own basic experiences and um, that diversity of thought is welcomed, then oh, the, the company overall benefits from that. Um, so it, it, it really does go back to when I'm given a seat at the table, when I'm truly empowered and I can promote and encourage and operate with a true diversity of thought, the company overall benefits. So it's bringing my colleagues along from the perspective of what are we all trying to achieve here? 
And what success have you had with within other companies or within your own company with about these initiatives? I the, the stats that I shared with you a few moments ago um, is absolutely in line with my experiences with these different um, Fortune 100 companies. Johnson and Johnson is the company I would say that DEI well. Um, not perfect, still opportunities, but they did it well. They were intentional about have repre representation across many de de demographics, women, people of color, and throughout um, the senior ranks, right? This is a global company. And what they do well, Emmett, is they tie their salaries to their DEI um, metrics, right? And so if my company is not performing well, then my earnings, what I take home, my salary is reflected in that. They are only one of a few companies that actually tie um, senior leadership salaries to DEI initiatives. Most companies don't even have metrics to measure what they say they want to accomplish, right? But J&J &J has done a great job in tying, um, holding corporate leaders accountable to what they say they want. You can go and look at any annual report for any public company. And in this report, you will see um, diversity and inclusion, uh, the different diversity and inclusion section, but it doesn't always tie back to what's going on in the organization. For example, when you look at the largest healthcare company in this, in this nation, which is CVS, they have no African-Americans in their senior ranks. Same with the, in the finance industry. In Silicon Valley, which is supposed to be this progressive, this liberal industry, there are no Black members in senior leadership at Facebook, at Google, at Microsoft, or Amazon. And so we have these, we have these initiatives, but we're not living them. We're not living them at all. And so I think we, it's important to figure out why they're important, tie it back to overall company performance, and more importantly, tie it to um, the leadership teams who like to present them as um, an effort to be in solidarity to um, underrepresented groups. You talked about, you know, no leadership at the top levels. I just can just say these words, they're not living their creeds. They're not living what they say that they're going to do and, and how they're going to change things. And I would be curious to see in three to five years how the stats look or if there are any senior leaders in some of these positions of power in some of those same corporations in the future. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, what would you say is the most difficult part of implementing a DNI program? So the, the equity part, which is understanding that um, not everyone starts at the same place, but not only that, an understanding of these unconscious biases. When I hear the Brian Moynihan's of the world, and he's not the only one that thinks this way, these statements have been around for years, they really truly believe that there is a lack of talent out there. And so if you're operating from that premise, you are likely not going to make an effort beyond the sound bites, beyond the pledges. 
you know, last year during the protest, executives were tripping over themselves to make multi-million dollar pledges to anti-discrimination efforts um, and programs to support black businesses. Yet many of these same companies expressing solidarity have actually contributed to systematic inequality because they're failing to hire, they're failing to promote. And even when they do um, hire and promote, they're, they're failing to fairly compensate black men and women. So they're, they're not even thinking about how to build a deep bench or a pipeline of African-American talent, yet they're all coming out with these pledges towards the African-American community, which says to me, again, this is about external presentation to your shareholders and your stockholders so that you can say, I've done it and I've checked the box, but I have no real intention about creating a culture of intention. And part of that is believing your unconscious bias, which is they're just not a large enough pool to satisfy what I really want to do. I'm making an effort, but hey, if they're not there, they're not there. You can't, you can't blame me for that, right? But at the end of the day, that is the easy way out. And it really does simply reflect that it's more, it's more about pleasing external stakeholders rather than creating a true culture of intention. Because I can tell you, these pledges have been going on for decades, right? I've been in the business for well over two and a half decades. I've heard the same song and dance, but in 2021, there's still only four black chief executive officers in 500 of the largest companies in this nation. That's 0.0008%. You're telling me that only four African-Americans were worthy to be titled CEO out of 500, right? And so these pledges have not even come close to making the impact. As far as I'm concerned, these are just PR pushes. There's no real intent there. And when you're being held accountable, you simplify it and say the talent pool isn't there. Yep. So just a bunch of noise, bunch of noise. Yeah, as as Jeremy likes to say, we want to see if you're going to keep that same energy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So to start wrapping up the call, how do you think Untapped can play a role within fighting discrimination in the workforce and recruiting, and honestly, even within wealth management and education, things like that? If Untapped has access to senior leaders and decision makers who are actually responsible to DNI, I would love to have a panel discussion. I'd love to talk about, you know, why is there this big, big disconnect between stated goals and the lived realities as evidenced by the stats that I just shared with you guys? How is it that we have all the, the solidarity pledges? We have all these stated goals but I can look across the last two decades and at the end of the day, I can only name four black CEOs, right? I can show you on my hand how many women and people of color are you're retaining in your company. One of the things I fought hard for was it's not just about hiring, it's absolutely about retaining, right? Because for corporate America, In their minds, if I hired 10 people 10 years ago and I still have 10 people a few years later, 
they're fine with that. But guess what? It's a different 10 people. You have a revolving door. Um, and so the way I think Untap could really start to hold companies accountable is to have an honest panel discussion around those who are actually making decisions, who are responsible for DNI, um, and those who are living through it and not feeling that valued membership of the organization because they they basically feel like um, boxes to check on their annual strategy plans. Excellent. Did yeah. that answer your question, Emmett? Yeah, that's that's incredible advice. And again, we always get great answers when we ask that question. So thank you so much for that. With that, thank you so much, Bontrese, for joining us this evening. Really loved your insight. This was a fantastic conversation. Jeremy, I don't know if you've got any final questions or thoughts. Another banger, as I, I would call it. The the answers and, and what I like the most is, is that this has been a focus for her. She came with stats to prove what is really going on. So for the listeners out there, I hope they really paid attention and, and actually go out and research some of this stuff them, themselves because we got a professional that's been in the business for over two decades and she's seen a lot, heard a lot, done a lot, and no doubt she has the experience to speak to it. So, but yes, I, I appreciate just dropping the knowledge that, that was stated and, and really some of those hard questions, you just mowed straight through them like it was nothing. So uh, again, much appreciated. Thank you, Jeremy and Emmett for having me. Uh, this is a passion area of mine. I learned through it. And so I'm hoping to pave the way and help, you know, young professionals step in a role where they can truly have an impact. I thank you guys for having a platform like this. Um, I wasn't aware of it, but when I heard some of your other podcasts and I was offered the opportunity, I was like, well, I would love to share my perspective. So thank you for having me on. Yes, absolutely. It is, it is a pleasure. And I can say for myself, it is 100% educational for me. Um, it's given me a lot of wonderful insight. I share this with my family. So as our audience grows, I mean, even just within the three people that you're, you know, that you're spending time with, that you're, you're making an impact on, you know, my lives and my family's lives just by sharing this because it's stuff that we aren't familiar with. And so I love getting to, to chat and speak with you and all of our other guests as well. Is there anything, Montrese, that you want to promote? Maybe shout out your business, uh, maybe some wealth management tips and tricks, anything that you want to kind of wrap the call up with? Um, so I, I'd love to share my tips and trips, tricks, um, maybe on another podcast related to wealth management specifically. That is also a passion area of mine because I feel like for so many years, our communities felt like it was out of reach for them. And technology has brought it that much closer. New information is readily available. I have the team, I have the expertise. And so I love, just like I'm passionate about DNI, I'm also passionate about providing the, the tools so that uh, when people talk about generational wealth, they really know what that means and what it'll take. And it's not outside of their reach. So. Um, maybe another podcast. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Don Therese, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in on this episode. We will see you all next time.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we'd be honored if you would review us wherever you listen to our podcast. We are actively looking for people of color to send us their resumes and career aspirations. So please, log on to untappedrecruiting.com to learn more.